Hello, and welcome to In the Dirt from the Gravel Ride podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, and I'll be joined shortly by my co-host, Randall Jacobs. In this week's episode, we're tackling our first Q&A episode. We've mentioned the ridership community on a number of occasions on this podcast. It's a community that's full of vibrant questions all the time. So we thought we'd put out an ask to say, what are the things you want to learn about? What should Randall and I be discussing? And we were overwhelmed by the number of questions we received. So much so, in fact, that we're going to break this episode down into two parts. So today we'll focus on part one, and in the coming weeks we'll release part two. Before we jump into this week's episode, I'd like to thank this week's sponsor, Thesis Bikes. As you know, Randall Jacobs, my co-host in these In the Dirt episodes, is the founder of Thesis Bikes. What you might not know is it's the bicycle I've been riding for the last, let's say, year and a half. Over the course of this podcast, I've had the opportunity to ride many bicycles, and I keep coming back to my thesis as my number one bike in the garage. It really does deliver on the promise of a bike that can do anything. As many of you know, I operate with two wheel sets in the garage, so I've got a 700C wheel set with road tires on and my go-to 650B wheel set for all my off-road adventures. In the many, many hours of conversation I've had with Randall, I've really come to appreciate how thoughtful he was in designing this bike and everything that goes in the Thesis community. Randall and the team are available for personal consults, which I highly recommend you take advantage of. If you're interested in learning more about the brand and figuring out how to get the right fit for your Thesis bicycle. In a shocking statement, I can actually express that Thesis has bikes in stock. It's something we haven't been able to say about a lot of bike brands these days during the pandemic. It's October as we're releasing this episode, and they have bikes available for November delivery with the SRAM Access builds. They also have frame sets available. So I encourage you to head on over to thesis.bike to check out more about the brand, the story, and the product, and book one of those free consultations with a member of the Thesis team. With that said, let's dive right into this week's Q&A episode. Randall, how are you today? I am doing well, Craig. How are you, my friend? I am doing good. I'm particularly excited for this episode because it essentially came entirely from the ridership community. We're doing our first ever Q&A episode. Yeah, people have a lot of trust in us, maybe too much in terms of our knowledge here. So we'll try not to get over our heads in terms of uh, what we claim to know. But a lot of good questions here, and hopefully we can answer most of them. Yeah, I think that's been one of the cool things about the ridership is I see these questions going on all the time. And I quite regularly see them answered by people smarter than you and I in a specific area of the sport. They have particular knowledge about a specific region. So it's really cool to see those happening in real time every day for the members of that community. Yeah, everything from fit-related questions where we have some experts in there, professional fitters like Patrick Carey, who I just did the episode with just before this one, I was in there answering questions. But then also, if you've got a question about tires, nobody's going to have ridden all of them. But somehow everyone has been ridden by someone in the forum there. And it's one of our most popular topics. Yeah, and I've seen some really detailed help transpire between members as well, just like 
random disk break problems or compatibility problems. Mm -hmm. And I'm always shocked when someone raises their hand digitally and starts answering a question saying, no, I experienced that exact same weird problem and combination of things. Yeah, it really fits into the spirit of the ridership in which embodied in that word was this idea of fellowship, like riders helping riders. So it's been super cool to see that community develop organically. And so thank you all members who are listening and to those who aren't in there yet. We hope you'll join us. Yeah, just head over to www.theridership.com and you can get right in and start interacting as much or as little as you want. I think the uniqueness of the platform is it is designed inherently to be asynchronous. So you can put put a question in there, give it a little time to marinate and a couple of days later, get lots of answers. It's pretty yeah. cool. And in addition to that, there's also rides being coordinated. So myself and another rider here in the New England area are leading a ride. And we have about 10 or 15 people who chimed in wanting to join. And we've seen quite a bit of that in the Bay Area as well. So that's another use case for this in addition to sharing routes and general bicycle nerdery. Yeah, it's super cool. So this episode, we're clearly going to jump around a bunch. We've tried to organize the questions. So there's, there's some pairing around them. But these are questions that all came in from subset of individuals. So they are what they are, and we wanted to jump on them. Yeah. So with that, let's let's dive right in, okay? All right, let's do it. Cool. So the first question comes from Keith P. And he says, every time I go out for a gravel ride, I think, why is this roadie wearing Lycra on dirt trails when there's no podium to win or anybody watching? What is this obsession with wearing skin-tight clothing in a sport that resides in the dirt? I don't know about you, but I'm just showing off. Your physique? <laughs> my my Adonis-like physique, sure. It's just more comfortable for me. And I like to go pretty hard and I'm sweating a lot. And if I had baggier gear on, I would tend to have potential issues with chafing and the like. So for intensity, I definitely find that the Lycra is a lot more comfortable. Yeah, I'm sort of with you. Like I do a desire to be that guy in baggy shorts and a t-shirt. But every time it comes down to it, I'm grabbing the Lycra. I think for me, there's a couple performance things. Definitely on the the lower body, I appreciate the Lycra just because I don't get any binding and less potential for chafing. So I'm like, I'm all about a bib short for riding unless it's a super, super casual outing for me. And then up top, I think it comes down to, I do having the pockets in the jersey. So that sort of makes me tend towards wearing a jersey, even if I, it's just solely to carry my phone in my pocket. And if you really want to be pro, show up to an elite race in like a Led Zeppelin t-shirt and some cutoff jorts and hairy legs and just rip everyone's legs off. That would be super impressive. But for the rest of us, if you if you have those sorts of legs, That's yeah, pro, we would be very sure. impressed. Send pictures in to the ridership if you actually do that. Yeah. So you'll see me, you'll see me rock a t-shirt, you know, it's a performance t-shirt instead of a cycling jersey on occasion and I just jam stuff into bags but yeah nine times out of ten unfortunately I'm that lycra clad gravel cyclist a mammal I think right middle <laughs> yeah. age man in lycra <laughs> I'm right behind you second, I'm the age category second question comes from Tom Scheel yep. and forgive me if I mispronounce your last name he'd love to get our insights into winter riding especially tips for those of us in New England who go out on cold dark mornings mm. uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here Randall and say it's probably not the guy from California that should be offering this advice let's have you go first for that reason <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, you New Englanders will 
throw hay bales at me and, and make fun of me, but I do find it cold here. And it's all about layers. <laughs> okay, it's definitely carry on. all about layers. Actually, in fact, I just got some great gear from Gore and I was scratching my head because it's really designed for way cooler temperatures than I have available to me. So a fleece lined tight is something that's just outside of the weather that I'm going to experience as much as I'll complain about it being cold. But I do appreciate a thermal jersey for the Dawn Patrol rides and things like that. But for me, it's always come down to layering. And as someone who's been around the sport for a while, what I really do like about my wardrobe today is I think I have a really good understanding about what to layer on for what temperature. And having been in the sport long enough, I've just acquired a lot of clothing along the way. So I even go down to having like a thicker vest mm -hmm. than just a, a standard thin vest. And they're very nuanced. And it's only because I had decades worth of clothing kicking around that I, I've really started to understand and embrace how each garment is for a particular degree temperature and the layers will get me to a certain point. Yeah, I'm I'm 100% with you on layers. I like to go like jersey and then maybe a base layer or older jersey underneath add to that thermal sleeves, a vest that has a windbreaking layer on the front, a balaclava is also a great thing to have when the weather gets a bit colder. One, to keep your head warm and your ears warm and to keep the wind off your face, but then also you can breathe through it. So you're preheating the air. And when it gets bitingly cold, which I don't know, you may not have experienced this, but I've definitely ridden around the Boston area, five degree temperatures and you got ice crystals forming on the front of it. But at least you're getting a little bit of that preheating first. Definitely want some windbreaking booties, windbreaking layers on the front of the body generally when it gets really cold. If you must, you could do like heat packs on the backs of your hands. So over your arteries, delivering blood if you're in real extreme conditions. Let's see, Tom also mentioned riding cold dark mornings which means low pressures for grip and then also lots of lots of lights, lots of reflectivity. Uh, you definitely don't want to be caught out. And that's a good general rule, but especially riding in dark conditions when people might be tired. And then what else? I could add the other big thing that I, I really enjoy is a thermal cap with the little flaps over the ears. Mm -hmm. I find that really just keeps the heat in there. Yeah, that's a nice intermediate solution before it's too cold to expose your, your face going that yep. route. Other things, pit stops with hand dryers. So I knew where all the Dunkin' Donuts were along my route. So I could just go in there on a really cold day and just dry off and heat up. People around here sometimes like embrocation. Gives you like a burny, tingly sensation on the skin. Vaseline is actually a big one. It helps with insulation on exposed skin and helps it from getting dried and, and raw and so on. So I'll put Vaseline on my face and that actually makes a big difference in keeping me warm. And I don't find that it has any you know negative effects on my skin, my pores and things like that. I'm trying to think, did we yeah. miss anything? Oh, tape the vent holes on your shoes. That's a big one. Because even with booties, sometimes the holes will still, oftentimes the, the holes will still be exposed. And so close that up. Otherwise, you're just going to get airflow into the shoe and you'll know exactly where it's coming from once you get on the road. Yep. And I remember when all hell broke loose, I would even stick my foot in a plastic bag and then put it in the shoe mm -hmm. to get a little extra warmth. I don't necessarily recommend that. And I do know and I'm aware that you can get Lycra socks now and different kind of 
obviously wool is a great material to have underneath your shoe. Yeah. I love wool and I'll take like old wool sweaters and stuff and cut the sleeves and then put it in the dryer to shrink. So it's tight against the body and that'll be a base layer because it's just great for loft and for wicking. Uh, So if you're trying to be cheap, that can be a way to go about it. I'm I'm now like off in my head imagining sleeveless Randall in a tight fitting wool sweater and it's more reading Burning Man than cycling performance. Well, with the jorts, I might show up at a race near you. Our next couple of questions are from Alan Collins and the first one's around everyday carry. What do you always carry with you on every ride? Tools, parts, spares, pumps, hydration, snacks, gels, etc. Are you traveling light or packing an RV? So I'm now back in New England, so I'm often relatively near civilization. So I'm not as comprehensive as I would be, say, like riding in Marin, where I might be a good five, six mile walk over some mountains to get to anywhere. But critical things, I bring plugs, like tire plugs, in my case, Dyna plugs, bacon strips, same deal, spare tube, a tool that has all the, the, the critical things I need. If you're one of our riders, make sure you got a six mil on your tool because that's what you need for your through axles. What else? If, if there's any risk whatsoever of me getting caught out in the dark, I'll have lights front and rear, might as well. I'm trying to think of anything else that I always bring along. That's, that's the key stuff, how about you? Yeah, I'm a mid-weight packer. Like I've really embraced that quarter frame bag, so I, I just tend to be ready for most eventualities that I expect. And obviously I I gear up depending on the amount of hours I I plan on being out. I tend to bring one nutritional item per hour that I'm going to be out. Obviously if I'm going out for an hour, I tend to be forgetful about hydration and nutrition. I don't really think too much about it, but I, I do think about it in terms of the number of hours I'm going to be out and then building Certainly my nutrition and hydration on top of that, my basic everyday carry, same with you. I just want to make sure I can handle the most likely kind of repair scenarios out there on the trail. And I don't go overboard with it. There's probably many more things I would bring on a bikepacking trip than I do on a five hour ride. Yeah. But one thing I forgot to mention on this. Yeah, we did the everyday carry in the dirt episode nine. So listen there. That's where we go deep nerd on all the things. If you want a comprehensive list of what you might bring. The other thing, I don't know if I mentioned a pump, duh. So forgot that one there. Yeah, pump Uh, and CO2 for sure. Yeah, yeah. But otherwise, it really depends on the ride. These days I'm doing mostly like hour and a half, two hour higher intensity rides, actually oftentimes even shorter, lower intensity rides. So I don't need to bring as much, but where you are, you have microclimates all over the place on Mount Tam. Yeah. Yeah, I'm always rocking like a full spare jacket in there unless I'm going out midday, which is rare these days. I just figure if I'm going downhill, I might as well be warm and it just makes it more pleasant. So that's why, again, like I have that quarter frame bag and I just jam it full of stuff. After our everyday carry episode, I did get a magic link because it's Mm -hmm. it's nothing like there's obviously no weight. And I just threw it in there. Fortunately, I haven't had to use it, but it's there if I ever did need it. Oh, you don't have the technique for breaking the chain and being able to piece it back together without the, the magic I, link? I'm fairly skilled at that, but I don't have a chain breaker that I bring with me. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Alan's next question was, do you have any tips for prepping a gravel bike for competition in road gravel mix or cyclocross? Don't do it the night before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's a couple different ways to go with this question, right? Obviously, if you're a cross specialist, there's going to be lots of things you're going to do. For me, if I 
got the courage to race cross again, I would just show up with what I got and I wouldn't really mess with it too much. Yeah, I would do basic checks. A couple weeks out, I would just be making sure that I don't have anything that's about to fail because especially now parts are a challenge to, to find in many cases, even brake pads. And in fact, if you don't already have a set, get some extra brake pads, just have them around just in case. But otherwise, checking chain length and, and lubrication, making sure there's sealant in the tires, um, having all my gear and kit and nutritional stuff laid out, making sure the brake pads have, have enough life in them, this sort of thing would be the basics. And I would do this several days in advance and I would make sure to get a ride in before I actually did the race just to make sure that I didn't mess up anything that's going to bite me later. Like the worst thing you can do is be working on your bike the night before or the morning of and then potentially miss something or break something or have to replace something. Yeah, I forget who I was listening to. It might have even been Kate Courtney or perhaps a professional female gravel rider who was saying they arrived at actually it was Sarah Sturm. Sorry. She arrived at the start line of an event and realized that her brake pads were totally thrashed and her mechanic slash partner said, I'm going to change them right now. And that would stress me the heck out, but, yeah. but he did it and it was successful. She's like, thank God, because I never would have been able to stop on the way downhill. I was swapping bikes from one, the one I had ridden the other day and just didn't think about it. All right, everyone, you've been warned. <laughs> <laughs> what have we got next? It reminds me, I need to get an order in for some brake pads because I'm definitely reaching the end of the um, life of the current ones. All there right, so next couple questions are from Ivo Hackerman. And he's asking thoughts on Red Bull entering gravel with a race in Texas. I don't know if you caught this, Randall, but it was Colin Strickland and Payson, Payson McKelvin have bonded together and are doing a race out of Marfa, Texas that Red Bull is sponsoring, which is natural because both of those athletes are Red Bull sponsored. So I'm assuming like extreme gravel, jumps, flips, things like this? Is this the evolution <laughs> yeah. of the sport? Exactly. Now, I think both those two guys are so grounded in the culture of gravel racing and, in my opinion, have been good stewards of conversation as we bring these mass start gravel events forward. I think it's great. I think the bigger question probably within this question is about is Red Bull coming in as an as quote unquote an advertiser and sponsor of the event? Is that somehow changing the experience? Is it becoming more corporate? Is it something other than the community wants to see? Again, with those two people involved, I think it's a positive thing. Yeah, I, I don't see it as a problem, even if it's not not any you know, my personal thing. For me, I love the the really local, really community oriented events that are much more like mullet rides. And yeah, there's a little bit of a competition going on up front, but it's not a huge deal. And we definitely do see more of a professionalization of gravel. There's a space for everyone and there's a space for different types of events. So I don't see them displacing the events that are even more kind of grassrootsy. So, you know, I don't have a problem with it, especially if they end up doing yeah. flips. <laughs> Red Bull. Next question from Ivo is uh, how to transition from weekend warrior to competitive rider. I feel like I'm better suited to answer the reverse question. How to move <laughs> from a competitive rider to weekend warrior. That one is easy. Yeah. Let's see. Step one, have a kid. Yeah. That'll that'll take care of that in a hurry. Yeah, for me this trend it's it's all about structure. Like I and I don't have any or much in my riding anymore, but I, I recognize in listening to coaches and talking to them, it really is all about structure. 
And even if that structure just means you have one specific interval training session a week and then your long endurance rides on the weekend, to me, by my likes, I think you'll see a lot of progression. And as you progress, I think then you start to see the potential for coaching, more multi-day structured program in your week if you're willing to go down that route. But to me, from what I've seen, first step is intervals. Yeah, structure intervals is is one. And then within the context of a periodized training program, which is to say you do different types of training at different times during the season based on the amount of training time you have available and the events that you're preparing for. Because there's no sense in doing a lot of intensity several months out from a race and then be firing on all cylinders, say, three months out, and then just be totally kicked by the time your event comes around. You have that build, you do base training, and then you're doing more tempo. And then towards the events, your hours are going down and your intensity is going up. And you're really trying to peak for that specific event. Uh, the book that was one of the Bibles when I was racing some time ago was Joe Friel's, I think it was called like the Training and Racing Bible or the Mountain Bikers Bible or something. A book like that would be a good starting point. And then if you have the budget working with a coach, especially early on to really just accelerate uh, your learning and to get someone to bounce ideas off of and to you know use them as a way of learning your body. And that last part I would add at the very least, heart rate monitor, learn how your body responds to stress, but then a power meter as well is, is just a, a tremendously helpful tool. And they're cheap now. You can get a 4i power meter bonded onto a lot of cranks for 300 bucks. So there's really no reason not to make that investment if you're spending all this time to train and to go to events. 300 bucks is pretty low-lying fruit. Yeah, it is a great source of truth, having a power meter, for oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing would be a bike fit, actually. If you haven't done it already, I think everyone should invest in a bike fit if you're doing any reasonable amount of riding. But if you're going to be racing and training and like trying to squeeze out every last bit and not get injured, go get yourself a bike fit. Next question, moving on to what we've deemed a components category. JC Levesque, probably mm-hmm. pronounced that wrong. Sorry, JC. Appreciate the question. He's asking, what about handlebars? There's a move towards wider flared bars and gravel and a few odd ones out there. There's the kitchen sink handlebar from our friends at Redshift, a coefficient bar from our friend Rick Sutton. Obviously, he's mentioned the Canyon hover bar, although that isn't an add-on. It's integrated into that bike. But he asked, it may be worth going over. The different expectations are for drop bar bikes that is tackling gravel versus pavement versus trail. Sure. You want to you wanna take a stab at this first? So for me, I think we're going to continue to see more and more riders explore wider and flared bars. Like when I jumped on that trend and went out to a 48 millimeter with a 20 degree flare, I immediately felt more comfortable. My orientation as a gravel cyclist is towards rougher terrain, more like pure off-roady kind of stuff. So I really appreciate, appreciated that width. It is a pretty easy component to forget about when you get a bike, right? So many things are going through your mind when you're buying a bike. The handlebar is just the handlebar it comes with. If you're working with a a good shop or from a good direct manufacturer, they're going to ask you appropriate questions about what width you should get. But I do think there's going to be this continued trend towards exploring these different types of bars as the gravel market continues to see people ride these bikes in different ways. 
Yeah, I generally agree. And I think it's a good thing. I'm not sold on the extremes of flair. I just don't see it as necessary. There's not so much torque being delivered through the steering column when I'm riding even on technical terrain that I'm finding myself needing more control with a dropper post, of course. That's the big caveat, right? Because that's lightening up the front wheel, taking a mass off of that front wheel, putting it on the back, allowing the body to act as suspension more. So that helps a lot in reducing the need for leverage. We do a 10 degree flare. And I find that for me, that's the max I can do with a traditional flare while still having my hands in a comfortable position. And I actually find that flare is helpful in terms of my wrist comfort and hand comfort. And you see this uh, as a trend actually on road bars too, four to six degrees of flare on road bars starting to happen. You also see a trend towards uh, levers coming standard with a bit of kick out, a bit of flare at the lever itself, which goes along with these trends. The thing that I'm actually really interested in is bars like the 3T Arrow Giaia. I think that's how it's pronounced. This bar has a pretty compound bend, so it's relatively standard on the hoods, but then flares out below the hoods and gives you that extra leverage while at the same time giving you more of a roadie position on top. And I really like sticking with this one bike trend and making keeping these bikes as versatile as possible just because they can be. And in the case of that bar, it's also that aero profile I don't think is super important, frankly. People overblow the, the value of aero and we can talk about that. But it's certainly not a problem. And that aero profile probably gives it some more vertical flex. And I think that's actually a great way to get some additional compliance on gravel bikes is to have some flair in the wings of the bar. Yeah, I think you're right. I think people are going to continue to explore that. It's it's a market that I think is tricky for manufacturers to play in because people are so entrenched with what they know and have. And exploring some of these new trends can often be costly. It might be 100 to $300 to get a handlebar and try it out. Yeah. 400 plus in some cases. You can spend a lot of money on a carbon bar yeah, in particular. Yeah. A related question comes from East Bay Grant. Just question on aero bars and gravel. Yeah, pretty trivial gains. All in all, if you're going to be spending money on, even just on aero, get an aero helmet. Like that would be a, a bigger impact than aero handlebars, these are just very marginal gains. And I wouldn't at all compromise ergonomics or control in order to go aero. So if you're already getting a new bar and there's an aero version and a non-aero version that you like and there aren't any other compromises, sure, go with the aero version. But I don't think that this is where your low-lying fruit is. Yeah, I was reading it as aero bar extensions on the handlebar and my perspective is it just depends on what you're doing. At the end of the day, if you're hauling across the plains for 200 miles. I understand having a variety of hand and body positions is required and useful, and I'm all for it. If you're ripping around Marin, I think you're going to find that you never you never set your arms in a gravel bar if you're actually in the dirt, but that's just where I live. Well, now, now that you've reframed the question, yeah, it definitely has their place. And in addition to offering another hand position that's particularly useful if you're just bombing down a really straight road and into a headwind, it could be a real aerodynamic advantage there. It also gives you another place to secure gear to. So if you're doing an extended bikepacking tour, it has that added benefit. There's a place for it for sure. Yeah. Next question comes from our friend Tom Boss from Marin County Bike Coalition. He was out riding and he mentioned that he was thinking about how things get named in the cycling world and how his gravel bike 
he thinks of as an adventure bike effectively the way he rides it and then he had a, a funny note just about why clipless pedals are called clipless when there's actually no clip yeah actually yeah so anyway i think this is something you've been on about the naming convention in cycling just about these bikes being adventure bikes more than anything else yeah, it's really like adventure is what we're doing with it. Gravel is one type of surface that we're riding. And I like the idea, granted, not you know only a subset of bikes fall into this category, but like we call our bike a one bike. And I think bikes like the the Allied Echo, the Cervelo Espero, and a few others fall into this category of being an endurance road, or even in the case of the Echo, borderline crit type geometry that you can achieve while at the same time being very capable for adventure riding. And for that type of bike, you could call it a one bike, but then otherwise what is being called a, a gravel bike on the more off-road technical end of the spectrum, I think it's an adventure bike. And in fact, even if it doesn't has have bosses and other accommodations for bags and bikepacking, a lot of these bags and so on are you can strap on or mount in other ways. So you could go and do some adventuring with it. Yeah, I think they, these names of categories start to take hold at the grassroots level and then manufacturers just get behind them. And certainly in the early days of the quote unquote gravel market, it was just easy to call it gravel as opposed to road or mountain. Presently, obviously, we can acknowledge there's so many so many nuances there, and there's this spectrum of what gravel means. So, yeah, they are adventure bikes, plain and simple. But I guess I understand where gravel came from. What's good though is we have another category, right? So we can get you to buy an adventure bike and a gravel bike, an endurance road bike, and a crit bike, and a cyclocross bike. And even if all these bikes could be the same bikes. Uh, let's not tell anyone because that gets them to buy more bikes. <laughs> I think that's the marketing perspective on some of the naming conventions. Next up comes a series of questions from Kim Ponders. And we should give a shout out to Kim because she's the one who really set this off. She actually recommended and suggested in the ridership forum that, hey, why don't you guys do a Q&A episode? And I immediately thought that great idea, Kim. I'm all about it. Yeah, thanks, Kim. So our have... first question is, what should I do, not do to avoid damaging a carbon frame? Mm. So I'll jump in on this one. Carbon is strong in tension, but not in compression. So never clamp it in a stand or sit on the top tube. Use a torque wrench always and avoid extreme heat sources like car exhausts, which uh, generally isn't a problem with frames because they don't end up in the main stream of the exhaust, but is definitely a problem with carbon rims. And we've seen a number of molten rims and it's usually it, they fail at the spoke holes first because there's just so much tension on those spokes that as soon as the resin starts to transition into more of a, a liquid glass, it immediately starts to crack at the rims. That'd be my main guidance for, for carbon generally. And as we've talked about it a little bit before on the podcast, I think as a frame designer, you're layering in carbon in greater greater levels of material in more sensitive areas. Correct. But you are, yeah. yeah. So like your, your down tube and by your bottom bracket, they can take a, a ding from a rock and they're going to survive. Generally, yes. So if you're kicking up a lot of rocks, adding a, a layer of thicker film is definitely a good idea. Uh, we put a very thin film on ours. It's mostly to protect the paint. And then film on the insides of the fork blades, seat stays, and chain stays where the tire passes through can save you a lot of grief if you end up with mud caked on your tires because that'll just grind right through the paint and potentially the layers of carbon. So we do that stock for that reason. And it's a good idea if you don't already have it, get yourself some 
3M protective film. Yeah. And for me, I, I actually run, it's essentially a sort of protective sticker layer from a company called All Mountain Style. Mm-hmm. And they just, in my opinion, do great visual designs. And uh, check them out because personally, I love when you look underneath my down tube that you see this digital camo kind of thing on my nice pink bike. Yeah, it's rad. It's definitely a way to pretty things up. Next question from Kim. Is there a basic regular maintenance checklist that I should be aware of? The things I should check every ride, every month, every season, every year. Yeah, what do you got? I think there's a lot there. Obviously, we've talked about the importance of making sure your chain is lubed, your tire pressure. Those are the things I check every single ride. Be aware of how your brakes are changing in performance. So keep a mental eye on your brake pads and how they're wearing. I'm not going around tightening bolts at all unless I've removed something. I'm not really messing with any of that. I do find my thesis to be pretty much ready to go as long as I'm paying attention to the tire and the chain lube. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's about right. I would add to that, but check the chain length every so often. And there's a question in here about how yeah. to do that. Get one of these go no go gauges. I've got the uh, the Park Tools CC3. There's a bunch of good ones out there. And if it has multiple settings to check, go with the most conservative one. Swap your chains early and often because it will save you a lot of money on your expensive cogs and cassettes. And it'll just make everything perform better. Uh, And then every so often, if you feel any looseness in your headset, that's a common thing that will come up over time potentially. Just, Just check that every so often. If you feel any looseness, you want to tighten it up early so it doesn't start to wear down the cups or things like that. Yeah. And if you can afford it and you don't have the skills in your own garage, definitely bring it in for an annual tune up. I think the bikes are going to come back working great and you've got some professional eyes on them. Yeah. Next question Kim asked was, what's the best way to pack a bike for air travel? So if you're trying to be the cheapest option for the packaging cardboard box, and if you're not doing it frequently, that's a good way to go. Yeah, agreed. There's a reason why every bike manufacturer in the world is shipping with a cardboard box. As long as you protect the bike inside the box with some bubble wrap or some additional cardboard, they generally arrive where they need to go intact and safe. And I've had multiple occasions where I've used a cardboard box on an outbound trip and the box is perfectly intact for the return trip. And we should say specifically a cardboard box that a bike would have come in because generally this will be a five layer corrugated box it'll be a a thicker you know material and if you need to reinforce it with some tape at the corners and and so on and if you get if it gets a hole in it patch up the hole but you can go pretty far with a cardboard box i have a post carry transfer case which i love it's a bit more involved i got to pull the fork and it takes me usually about 15 minutes or so 20 minutes to pack it up and to squeeze some gear in between the the wheels and the frame and things like that. But I generally get past any sort of oversized baggage fees. And I have the bigger of the two bags too. So oftentimes I don't even get asked what it is. And if I get asked, oh yeah, it's uh, sports gear, massage table, you know, whatever. That's the key for me. That post carry bag or Oro case is another company that makes one of these bags where, as you said, you've got to do a little bit more disassembly. Whereas typically it might've been take the handlebars off the pedals and your wheels and you can get into a cardboard box with these particular smaller bags. You do need to pull the fork, which seems incredibly intimidating when you first talk about it, but in practice, it's actually not. 
It's not too bad. Probably the biggest issue is if you have a bike with integrated cabling, then it can be a real nightmare. And in fact, I might even go as far as to say, if you don't know what you're doing, don't mess with it. A bike with external cabling or, or at least partially external, like our bike, you just have to be careful not to kink the hoses. That's the big, probably the biggest issue, kinking the hoses or bending the housings and cables in a way that affects the braking or the shifting. Yeah, yeah, if, you've, if your cables are particularly tight, it then becomes a problem. I think my routing is just on the edge. I do feel like I'm putting a little bit of stress on the cables when I'm disassembling it in that bag, but so far so good. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. of course you have the, the full size bags where if you don't care about paying the airline fees, then you'll get one of these, was it Evoc, I think makes a really nice one that has good protection. There's a, there's a bunch of companies that make good ones where you just essentially yeah, pull off the front wheel and throw it in. I've got a Thule one that is like bomber. It's got like a through axle slot, but one, it's hard as hell to move it around. And two, I got dinged on both weight and excess size on uh, my trip to Africa. With it, so I was pretty ticked. Yeah. And then the other thing is on the other end, can you get it into the trunk of a cab? And so that's actually another advantage of bags like the, the, the post transfer case and the oral case ones is you can, I think, I know the post one has backpack straps and then you can fit it in the boot of pretty much any vehicle. Yeah, totally underemphasized attribute and benefit of those type of bags. Totally agree. Like you can get into a sedan with a Prius Uber Lyft driver and, and make it in no problem. Oh yeah. Pardon the segue. That's going to do it for part one of our Q&A episode. I thought that was a great time to break and we'll jump into another half hour of questions and answers in our next episode of In the Dirt, which we'll release in the coming weeks. As always, if you're interested in communicating with myself or Randall, please join the Ridership community at www.theridership.com. If you're able to support the podcast, your contributions are greatly appreciated. You can visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride to contribute in any way you can to support the financial well-being of the podcast. If you're unable to support in that way, ratings and reviews are hugely appreciated on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. <laughs>